right, good afternoon. We have had some technical difficulties uh, recording our lesson tonight. So uh, we are coming to you on a pre-recorded channel. Uh, anytime you go live, you run the risk of, uh, of this kind of thing. Um, maybe it's the weather, who knows, but uh, we could not get it to function correctly today. So we're just going to record it uh, and, uh, and allow you to watch it um, when you can later today. So welcome into our class. We're going to start today with some announcements. We've got some, um, some things we need to make you aware of. Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, we have a, um, uh, a new idea, a new form of service, I guess, uh, that we can do. Um, this Sunday, you'll be able to uh, pick up a uh, lunch. Uh, we haven't been able to do potlucks this year, obviously, uh, and a lot of us miss that, just the time to be together and eat and sharing uh, thoughts over a meal. And so we are going to have to-go plates uh, for you this coming Sunday. Uh, pick one of those up, and at least we'll be eating the same food. <laughs> uh, if we're not getting to eat it together, at least we'll be able to eat the same food. Uh, but in along with that, we'll have uh, extra plates, uh, and we'd love for you guys to, to grab one of those and drop it off at the door of uh, one of our shut-ins or one of our uh, folks that have, uh, have had to stay away from services because of sickness or illness, if they're a caregiver or things like that because of COVID. Uh, we want to uh, connect uh, in as many ways like that as possible. So Sunday... There will be a sign-up sheet uh, for you to write down who you're going to deliver the food to. And just set on their doorstep, give them a call, talk to them. Um, however that works out for you. Um, but uh, that'll be Sunday and be, look forward, be looking forward to that. But we'll have one meal for everyone that's here as well as all of our, uh, our shut-ins. So thank Connie uh, and uh, the ladies that are preparing that are preparing for 150. So there should be enough for everybody who wants one. Um, in conjunction kind of with that, our, uh, our in-person worship services are going to be postponed uh, starting December 27th, the Sunday after Christmas. Uh, we're going back to our virtual worship service in an effort to uh, quell the, uh, the rising numbers in our county and in our community. Uh, we're going to go to a virtual worship service uh, for until maybe January 17th is kind of what we're looking at now. So December 27th uh, through January 17th, we'll be our uh, we'll, we'll be doing our virtual worship services. Uh, you can listen to those services in a variety of ways. Um, you can you'll still be able to listen to them on Facebook, of course, on our Facebook page. If you don't have technology or know somebody that doesn't have technology, you can call from any phone, a landline. A prepaid phone, a cell phone, any kind of phone, call this number and it'll get you to our worship service. It's 304-278-0763 uh, and that you can listen to like our last eight uh, worship services or classes. Uh, you can also listen on our podcast at Rome Church of Christ on all your podcast apps uh, or on our YouTube channel. And so that's uh, that's all the different ways you can, you can do that. Um, since we're not going to be meeting in person, uh, we may start doing uh, kind of a prayer list here uh, to kind of keep you updated in the middle of the week. Uh, so we thought, man, we, maybe we'd just start that this Wednesday and talk about some folks that are sick. Uh, Carol Galloway got to come home, so that's good news. Her pacemaker was replaced, and she's feeling better. Um, we have several folks that we're connected to and members of our congregation that have covid uh, David Roach, a uh, preacher at Winfield, some of you uh, I'm sure remember uh, he and Pam, uh, he has COVID, although she does not, so that's good news for her. Um, but be in prayer for David. Shelby Hagar is uh, Dottie Hagar's uh, granddaughter. She has COVID, as well as Sandy uh, and Gary Smith uh, all have COVID, so be, be in prayer for them. Larry Zimmerman has uh, upcoming cancer treatments that he would appreciate prayers for. Uh, Theron Stover is uh, Kim Stover's son and Maxine Romine's grandson. He's uh, really struggling with heart and his kidney functions. They're decreasing right now. So the family's asked for our prayers there. Uh, Gail Hewitt is doing much better. 
she was in fact in the office uh, yesterday so it was good to see her um, there are others I am sure that that I've uh, overlooked that I haven't uh, I'm not aware of but uh, maybe drop their, their names and, and what's going on in the comments uh, of this video and we'll get them on our prayer page all right we're gonna start our class now we'll hand the mic over to Rick and uh, we'll get the video ready Okay, we are, uh, as uh, Chris indicated, uh, laboring under some technical difficulties, but uh, we'll try to do this in a, um, a video uh, recorded uh, uh, circumstance here and uh, just make it available to you at, uh, at your leisure. Uh, we are in the uh, second of two lessons on morality and uh, how, how morality influences how we behave and the uh, title of the lesson is, it's Lesson 22, if you're following along, if you have uh, the uh, questions, uh, study questions. And I, I noticed when I was going through this today that those study question numbers are really messed up. Let's hope that the rest of them aren't that way. Uh, not that you can't follow them uh, without the correct numbering. Uh, this is Lesson 22, Morality's Proof of God. He has covered quite a bit of territory over the last uh, 21 lessons and uh, quite a variety of topics and this one uh, these last these two here last week and this week are going to deal with how we decide uh, as as human beings what is right and what is wrong and he uh, will continue his examination of uh, six different ways that modern man um, will rationalize and and choose their uh, modes of behavior and selecting what is right and wrong um, and then he's going to compare that, obviously, to uh, what the Bible says and what it has to offer as far as morality uh, is concerned. So, Lesson 22, John Clayton, Does God Exist? program number 22. I would like to suggest to you that this is sort of a continuation of program number 21. If you haven't watched the first discussion of morality's proof of God, I would encourage you to do that before you watch this program because we're going to continue that discussion. In program number 21, we took a look at some of the standards of the world around us. The question of how we make moral decisions. I want to emphasize that this discussion is part of our concern about the question of which God? Why Jesus Christ? Why the Bible? Why not Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or some other system? Why not a natural religion, a pantheistic religion? Why not atheism? One of the things we have tried to do is to talk about some of the historical evidence, some of the internal evidence, some of the things that are stated of great accuracy, scientifically and otherwise, in the Bible, which leads credulence to the biblical message. But what we have tried to do in this presentation is to talk about, okay, let's talk on practical terms. Does it lead us to anything useful? Does it help us in any way in life? And we looked at... 2 Timothy 3, where the Bible tells us that the Word of God is profitable. It means it's useful. And useful for things like correction, instruction, conduct in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, perfect, totally furnished to all good works. The claim that is being made is that we can see God's wisdom in what he tells us about how to live. We've looked at the question of whether we can use the will of the people that we live with as a basis of making moral decisions. We looked at result-based explanations of morality and the use of ourselves as a standard. I have suggested to you that in reality, evolutionarily oriented philosophies suggest that it is survival of the fittest or from a sociobiological standpoint my role is to promote my genes 
in the population in which I live, that's results. But there are logical inconsistencies in that position. It's not a workable, practical philosophy. And unfortunately, many of our sex education programs have been rooted in avoiding pregnancy, avoiding babies, and that's it, result-based. We tried to point out the inadequacy of such a standard. And then we looked at the question of whether things have changed. I tried to tell you the story about my seatmate on the airplane that said, look, we, we don't live in the, in the same age in which Jesus lived. That, that old philosophy of religious nature might have worked in Jesus' day, but, but we live in a new age. We have new technology. We don't have to worry about diseases. We don't have to worry about unwanted pregnancies. And, you know, again, I, I would suggest to you that, that if you just look at the demographics, you can see the difficulties in such a proposal. Have we been able to solve the question of unwanted pregnancies? Have we wiped out sexually transmitted disease? The very nature of these diseases suggests we'll never wipe them out, that they can mutate and change. Those of us that have worked with situations where sexually transmitted diseases are an issue, whether it's in the United States or in places like Uganda, have come very, very quickly to the conclusion that until you change the lifestyles of people, you're not going to stop the disease. But there's a couple of other standards I'd like to call to your attention, and many of these have to do with religious standards. For example, we have the situation where people, and, and, and the, we might not admit this, but where people will say, well, how much I do something makes it right or makes it wrong. And how many times have we said to ourselves, and, and we've, we've all been guilty of this, I mean, nobody's throwing rocks at anybody here, but how many times have we done something where we said, yeah, just, just do it once. I'll just eat that piece of candy, just one. Or more seriously, I don't get drunk very often, but just this one time. The idea that frequency makes something right or makes it wrong. If you are not as bad as somebody else, that makes you good. I have had atheists say to me, well, I haven't done as many bad things as that preacher or that priest down there has. Okay, frequency. You're saying that the number of times you engage in a wrong activity makes your conduct and the basis upon which you make decisions in your life valid. But let's think about that, just on a logical basis. How many times you got to shoot a man for him to be dead? <laughs> how many times do you have to get involved in a sexual relationship to conceive a child or to contract a sexually transmitted disease? The moral philosophy of the Bible is that God calls us to commitment. Listen to Matthew 12 and verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scattereth abroad. Jesus says, your faith in me is not a Sunday morning thing. You're either with me or you're against me. You're either committed to what I have called you to do or you're opposed to me. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it does mean that we're going to be faithful. Let me give you a clear distinction in this. I am faithful to my wife. That is within my ability. But I'm not perfect to my wife. I don't have the capacity to be perfect, but I do have the capacity to be faithful. And I think it's important to understand that that's what's applied here. We can be faithful to God. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be flawless. We're going to make mistakes. But the longer you're a Christian and the more committed you are to what the Bible teaches, the fewer number and the less severe those mistakes are going to be. And it's important to realize that commitment is maybe even a dirty word in our culture, but the fact of the matter is it is the only way to success in so many areas of our life. And God calls us to be faithful. There's also the practical way in which we use what we have. There's a wonderful story in Luke 12. It's a parable. 
Some people call it the rich fool. There's this guy that, that had it made. He had the Midas touch. Everything he did worked. He made money hand over fist. But rather than use the money for what God had given it to him for, this guy says, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to take a 10-year vacation. And God says, you're out of your mind. You're going to die now. So what good do the barns do you? The practical application being, we don't know what tomorrow brings. Life is an uncertain thing. And it's important for us to understand that frequency is a totally illogical position to take. And let me, let me make what some of you will consider to be an incredibly naive and old-fashioned position. But I want you to think about the practical application of what I'm saying. The very first time that you get involved sexually with someone you're not married to, you have just lost something. You have just destroyed something that you can never get back. And you have robbed or you have cheated your future wife or husband of the most precious thing you could have ever given them. And that is the freedom from comparison. The knowledge that they are the only one you ever cared enough about to completely and totally give yourself to. It's gone. Now, I, I have to say something very, very quickly here. Please do not misunderstand me. Because I know that I'm talking after the fact, probably to a majority of the people watching this video. And I'm not saying you're a bad person. And I'm not saying you can't have a good marriage. I'm not saying you can't have a sexually fulfilling marriage. I'm not saying you can't be a leader in the church, in your community. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that God has called us to be faithful, one man, one wife for life, for a reason. Because that special relationship that you have with someone when they are the only ones you have completely and totally given yourself to is a beautiful, sacred, wonderful relationship. And it's important to realize that suggesting somehow that there's something archaic or that we have grown beyond that is to be incredibly ignorant of the real value and the real beauty and the real specialness of a sexual relationship. God has called us to recognize the importance of being faithful. And the sexual relationship we have is something that should be special. One man, one wife for life. If you have not gotten involved sexually with someone you're not married to, may I suggest to you that you don't. And if you've already done that, let me point out to you that the more you add a dictionary of comparison, the more unlikely it is that you will have what God wants you to have in your sexual relationship with the person you're married to. There have been some interesting studies on this. This is a study that came out of Houston. This was a Singles Again program. And these were people that had gotten involved with someone they were not married to, outside of marriage. And they asked these people, did you end up marrying the first person you slept with? 21% of the girls said, yeah, they did. That means 79% said they didn't. And 92% of the boys said they did not. Why does that happen? See, I believe we have turned sex into something that is totally rooted around physical release and have recognized none of the really close, inherent, personal things that God intended for sex to have. There's another part of this study. They also asked these kids, well, how did it turn out? 82% of the girls said it was a bad experience. 82%? And 61% of the boys, and boys lie about this stuff a lot, said it was not what they 
expected it to be. It was not a good experience. Sex is something God has given us that's beautiful when it is right, when it is appropriate. And this idea that having multiple partners brings great satisfaction or sexual fulfillment or that somehow that should be the objective when we go out with someone is an incredibly distorted view of what God would call us to on a moral basis. There's another standard that's sort of closely related to this and it tends to affect all of us. There was a, a rap song some time ago that had a line in it that it was repeated over and over and over and the, and the line kept saying, if it feels good, do it. <laughs> in the old days, let your conscience be your guide. And the idea is that how we feel about something makes it right or makes it wrong. I want to tell you another teacher story here. I taught in a school called James Whitcomb Riley High School. It was an inner city school in the center part of South Bend, Indiana. I loved my teaching. I enjoyed being with the kids. I enjoyed getting into their lives. But when you go to college and you take teacher training education, you usually are taught by professors who have never taught and who know nothing about what they're talking about. <laughs> and nobody told me in Education F100 at Indiana University that one of the first rules you have when you teach in an inner city school is that you must always be between the kids and the door when the bell rings. That's fundamental. My first day at James Wickham High School, my third hour class, I was somewhere else in the hallway and the kids walked out of the room with a filing cabinet. Now you explain to me how a group of kids can walk out of a room with a filing cabinet and not have the teacher see it leave. I didn't see it go. I went down to the office right after third hour and the principal was standing behind the desk and I said, I can't believe it. My third hour class just stole my filing cabinet. And he looked at me and said, I bet you weren't between the kids in the door when the bell rang, were you? And I said, well, no. He said, well, now you know. <laughs> and the important thing to understand is that the situation in the school, the conditions in the school, led to a whole different standard. And I tell you that story to follow it up with this story. In that class, the same class, I had a kid who wore the same set of clothes every single day he came to class. And one day later in the year, I was working in the lab with the kids and the bell rang. And I'm in the back of the room and I thought, oh no. And I jumped up on the top of the lab station to watch the door to make sure nobody took my filing cabinet again. And I saw a few people looking back at me as they went out of the room. but. I saw a hand come out of the crowd and grab my stapler. Didn't recognize the hand. But then a hand came out and grabbed my lunchbox. And I knew the arm and the shirt. And I called from the back of the room, Joe Johnson, freeze! And the kid froze and everybody went by him and the kids were saying, oh, Joe, he's got you now, Joe. Blah, blah, blah. And the kid turns around to face me. He's got his books in one hand, he's got my lunchbox in the other. I said, Joe, where are you going with my lunchbox? He said, hey man, I'm hungry. And I said, yeah, I'm hungry too, and you were about to steal my lunch. He said, yeah man, but you can go downstairs and buy your lunch in the cafeteria. All I ever get to eat is what I can steal. And he looked me eyeball to eyeball, he did not blink. And I'm thinking, oh man. If I take this kid down to the office, they're not going to do anything. I'll lose my lunch hour. <sighs> so I finally said to him, all right, Joe, I'll tell you what. Give me my lunchbox back and tell me you're lying to me. And promise me you'll never do it again. And we'll let it go this time. But if you're telling me the truth, you go ahead and take my lunch, but I'm going to check you out. Now, wouldn't you expect most kids, given that option, to say, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, hand you the thing and take off? That's what I expected to happen. I thought I was going to get my little 30-minute lunch hour without any more interruption. You know what he did? He walked out with my lunch. Oh, man. 
Now I got a problem. So I went downstairs and I bought myself some lunch. And after school, I went down and pulled the kid's cum card. His address was on Broadway. Broadway was a street just north of the school, right in the middle of the ghetto. So I trot down there with the kid's cum card. And I found the house, white frame house. Went up on the porch, knocked on the door, didn't notice the red light on the porch. And a young lady opened the door wearing a negligee. And she looked at me and she said, oh, well, who would you like? And then I saw the red light and I'm thinking, oh, man, first year teacher gets fired for visiting a house of prostitution. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you got the wrong idea. I said, I teach at Riley. And I said, I got a kid in my class that says he lives here. And I showed her the coon card. And she looked at the coon card. She says, oh, yeah, that's Sally's half-brother. He lives in the basement. He lives in the basement. This kid was dumped on his half-sister by his mother when he was three years old. He has not seen his mother since he was three. He's never seen his father. The sister is a hooker walking, working in this house of prostitution. She was letting the kids sleep in the basement, which turned out to be part of an old coal bin. I am happy to tell you that the church got involved in that. We went down there. We got the kid out there, found him a home that he could live in and be cared for. But, you know, when one of the guys that was with me kicked the bed where the kid had been sleeping, the rats went running. Now, I have a question for you. Do you think that kid had the same kind of conscience that a kid that just grew up in an affluent middle class family in America has? See, your conscience is controlled by your experience. Those of us that have served in military combat can tell you that you learn to accept things in combat that would have made you throw up under any of the circumstance. And there was a man who had persecuted the church. There was a man who had done violence to the followers of Jesus Christ. This man, late in his life, stood before a Jewish Sanhedrin and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before man and God to this day. Paul said, even though I persecuted the church, even though I consented to the death of Stephen, even though I was an enemy of Christ, my conscience never bothered me. Your conscience is controlled by your experience. It is no guide. You cannot operate on feelings. But there's one more standard. And it's a standard that isn't based upon your feelings. It isn't based upon frequency. It isn't based upon the value of the people around you. It's not based upon you. It's not based upon the result of what you do. It's not based upon the society in which you live. It's based upon the Bible. And it says, I will follow a standard that God has given me in his word. And understand that we're not talking about religion here. There have been awful things done in the name of religion. The Crusades were done by organized religion and were in complete opposition to everything Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There have been awful things done by clergy with young boys. The pedophile problem is undeniable. We're, we're not talking about what people do, what religion does, not even what religion teaches. There are religions out there that teach all kinds of things that are opposed to the principles that are given in the Bible. But the question is, what does God want me to do? And I would encourage you to look at the teachings that are given in the Bible, some of which we have looked at here, and find any... If every human being on the planet lived to these standards. And then look at the teachings of the alternative. Look at the principles given in the Quran, in the Vedas, in the sayings of Buddha, and we, we've talked about some of these when we talked about God's finest design. We, we talked about the, the material earlier when we looked at the internal makeup of the Bible. Make the comparison. When people 
say to me, well, how can Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the light? No one comes to the Father but by me. How can he make a statement like that? My question is, have you looked at the evidence? Because the system works when it's followed. Not what religion does. Not what churches do. But when you look at what the actual biblical teaching is, I believe you can see the wisdom of God. And I am a Christian because I lived as an atheist. I used different moral standards. And you know something? If someone were to convince me there is no God, if someone were to prove to me that Jesus Christ never lived, if someone were to demonstrate to me that the Bible is not God's word, <laughs> I would still want to be a Christian. I would still want to live as the Bible has called me to live because I have seen the beauty and the love and the fulfillment and the incredible peace that comes with living as God has called us to live. But there is a God, and the evidence is overwhelming to that extent. And Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We can demonstrate that in so many ways. And the Bible is the Word of God. Every shred of evidence supports that. And so I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And no one comes to the Father but by Him, based upon evidence. Now, I want to emphasize, you say, well, that's a terribly intolerant position. Tolerance is not pointing out differences. Tolerance is not encouraging people to think. Tolerance is what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Live at peace. You can disagree with me. I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not going to cause harm to you. I'm not going to try to kill you. I'm not going to try and do anything that would afflict you. I will try to help you because that is my calling as a Christian. I'm not perfect. But I am So there, some really good points uh, for consideration and for thought, and I will only uh, say a few more things uh, to, uh, to comment on some things that he said and offer uh, a few perspectives from, from my standpoint. Um, he says that the, the Bible is, is useful. He ended up there with the fact that if someone were to, uh, to be able to prove to him that the Bible was not God's inspired word, uh, that Jesus never had come uh, in the flesh from heaven to live as man on this earth to save us from our sins, um, and all of the other things that in, in the scriptures that talk about um, the influence of deity um, in all of this. He said, I think I would still live the life of a Christian. might not be called that because if Christ is not involved, uh, then it would have to be a the good moral life that the Bible <clears throat> promotes. Uh, there is a um, a book, and I can't remember the name of it right now, but I have mentioned it from time to time in in our classes, um, and it's a it's a book uh, written by an individual who who takes the concept of Jesus um, as presented in the Bible and compares that person and what he taught and how he conducted himself compared to the perception of what it meant to be good, religious, um, moral at the time. And what he comes up with is this stark, stark contrast. And he looks at the education level and the uh, mental uh, maturity level and uh, the conceptualizing abilities of individuals uh, for complex uh, structures that Jesus introduced. And he, said, and he came to the conclusion, he says, Jesus Christ. If, if the scriptures were written when they were written, uh, when they proposed uh, to, uh, to, be, to have been written, couldn't have been written by anybody at that time. The concept of a father, a son, coming to this earth, teaching as he taught, 
concepts that were just the opposite of what mankind had believed and, and did believe and had believed for centuries. Um, this new law, this new way of looking at relating to others, doing good unto those who persecute you. That's not in our human nature, is it? Our instinct is to, is to fight back. But that's just one example of what Jesus said that just didn't make any sense to those people at that time. So for someone to concoct um, the personage of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, the life of Jesus, this hokey story about coming from heaven to be, uh, you know, to die on a cross for something that you didn't, you didn't do anything wrong. You were sinlessly perfect. Um, it's just a concept that, that man at that time was not able to come up with. And so that in and of itself, I think, helps support. It's not the only evidence that we have. There is a ton of evidence that we have that the Bible is indeed what it says it is. But what Clayton says is that even if we were able to disprove the facts presented in the Bible as facts, we would still live according to the teachings of Jesus. There is something special. There is something unique. There is something spiritual about the life of Christ and what he was able to demonstrate not only in his teaching and convey to the people that he taught, but also to demonstrate in his life this self-sacrificing um, on for the benefit of others with the absolute supreme uh, sacrifice that was uh, that could ever be um, dreamed up by anybody in heaven or earth. It's just a really fascinating and unique um, situation. He reviews briefly uh, his, his first four points about uh, what, what people use as rationale or excuses for behaving as they do. Everybody's doing it. Um, I just jotted down, <clears throat> if, you, if you took the morality that comes out of, and we just label it Hollywood, for decades now, Hollywood has been the, uh, the, the go-to uh, hotbed for, uh, and, and hotbed might be more descriptive than, than, than we might think, there for moral behavior. Um, it, it is amazing that how, as he says, relationships, first encounters, end up in bed. And that is as natural as they can make it. It is the way the world works, according to Hollywood. And that is so opposite of what he uh, and the Bible, ha ha what he says about the Bible and what the Bible itself says about relationships that, that, uh, that, that involve uh, sex. And, and marriage is, is the target of that. It's the home for that, and it is where it is supposed to be conducted. And his, his point about um, losing that special relationship with your wife because it, it wasn't shared with them. It has been shared with someone else with your spouse um, is, is an important point. And it, it, is, it is the meat of what uh, God is talking about when he, he created man and woman and said, leave mother, father, become one flesh, and uh, love and devote yourself to one another. So just because everyone's doing it does not uh, justify it. Um, second thing, the end justifies the means. Uh, that's not the way he phrased it. I think he said, um, how did it turn out, I think. But uh, we've heard that, that phrase, the end justifies the means, um, over and over again. And that if, that if it turned out okay, it was okay to do it. And he mentioned last week, and I think I mentioned another one, 
Um, ask Nadab and Abihu. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Did it turn out okay? Was God worshipped with that strange fire? Maybe. Did money get donated to uh, those who were needy as a result of Ananias and Sapphira's uh, deception? Probably. I don't even know. Maybe they. Maybe they, did they do something with that money? Um, we're not told, but uh, I don't know. But maybe. <laughs> but maybe something was done. Did that make it okay? Not in God's eyes, because it wasn't done uh, in the way that He wanted it done. It's my life. I can live it as I want. You're fine to adopt that, but there's going to be a judgment day. Uh, let, me, let me just read a couple of quick passages here. Romans 2 uh, says this. Um, who will uh, God, who will re render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but those who are selfishly ambitious. Selfish means I'm focusing on me, myself. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be a tribulation and a distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality um, with God. And then Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed, rewarded or punished. Recompensed is probably a neutral term for the deeds committed in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So um, it's my life. I'll live it as I want. It's fine. <laughs> but you're going to be accountable one day. And if you don't take into account that there is something beyond this life, then... Um, the recompense is not going to be um, in your in your favor. Uh, the uh, fourth one was times are changing, um, and we talked about that last time. Um, the truths, the morals, the principles, the values that are taught in the Bible are still truth, moral values, and principles that people, good people, live by today. That has not changed. Um, the way we look at some of them, obviously, has changed. Um, and so that is what has changed, but that hasn't changed the truth and the endurance and, and the enduring uh, nature uh, of, those, of those values and those, those truths. And then today he focused in on uh, just, just this once uh, and talked about the, does, does the fact that it is going to be an infrequent uh, sin make it any um, better make it any uh, less consequential um, he says that that, that, if that trying to validate it uh, is illogical um, that way um, so um, when we sin in most cases we know we are sinning um, ignorance of the law is, is not an excuse. Um, and the question is, if that is true, then every sin is a willful sin. Uh, we have chosen our will over God's will. We have chosen to violate His will and what we know uh, we should be doing. And so, um, how many times can you say, oh, just this once, just this once, just this once, there is this idea of, of uh, searing our conscience. <sighs> searing has to do with the stakes. You sear the outside of a stake. You, you seal it off so that the juices will stay inside. Um, that outside of that stake, it doesn't feel like the inside of that stake, uh, especially if it's a, a medium to rare uh, type of situation. Um, maybe you have received a burn on your hand or some part of your body and uh, that skin doesn't feel quite the same. Maybe you've had surgery and you have a scar and that skin feels a little bit differently. It's that way with sin. It loses its sensation of guilt 
the more times you do it. It is easier and easier and easier to commit sin. Um, I don't know if, if some of you have uh, in your life um, not attended church as regularly as you should have, or maybe even right now you're not attending worship as regularly as you should have, given the fact that we're in a COVID uh, situation. There is a concern, and I've heard it expressed. The people who are not showing up when we are in session right now is totally legitimate. People have concerns and fears. The question is, will they return when the all-clear signal is given? If you have ever been a regular attender and worshiper and fallen away, that first time you didn't go, your conscience more than likely hurt a little bit. The second time, less. The second, third time, less than that. To the point where maybe even on a Sunday morning worshiping God didn't even cross your mind. That's the subtleness of sin. And when we say only this once, it is awful difficult for us to predict our behavior in the future, especially if that once was in some way uh, self-satisfying, even though it was against God's will. So that one has tremendous uh, dangers to it, um, just this once. And the last one was, if it feels good, do it. Um, I have heard people say about sin, God doesn't care. God wants me to be happy. Show me that passage. God wants me to violate his will because it makes me happy. That would be so ungodlike. Um, God has laid down his law for us. He has told us what his will is. He expects us, as within all covenant relationships throughout the Bible, that if we do his will, we will be blessed. If we don't, those blessings are not going to come, whether here in this life or in the life, uh, uh, the next life after this one. Um, I had a friend in college who um, uh, caroused quite a bit, and yet he professed to be a Christian. I said, Mike, I said, um, do you see any, any inconsistencies uh, with your behavior and what you find in the scriptures and tout as something that you believe in? And he says, well, he says, um, you know, uh, the good thing is God is all forgiving. And I said, show me that passage. And, of course, he couldn't. God is a forgiving God. God will forgive those who sincerely repent. But continual, willful sin Praying on the fact that you think God is going to forgive you time after time after time after time after time after time, especially when you don't repent of those sins, is anti-Bible. It's not found there. That, that idea, that notion of, of being uh, all forgiven, that his, his forgiveness covers us no matter what we do, whenever or, or to whatever extreme is not there. We are accountable. And there's going to be a day when everyone will be appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we are going to be recompensed for the deeds that are committed in the body, whether for good or bad. He also makes the point that through our efforts we can overcome sin not that we will be sinlessly perfect there has only been one and that was Jesus but just like the negative consequences of sin becomes easier and easier and easier and easier over time to sin and our conscience doesn't hurt us it works in the other direction as well when you resist sin. We are told in the scriptures that this builds character. It builds confidence. It builds patience and endurance. 
when we are tested and come out on the positive side. It gives us confidence to know that I nailed that one. Let's hope I don't have to worry about that one again because I know I can resist that one. Well, let's talk about the next one or the next iteration of that first one, which is even, even bigger. Um, can I overcome that? The more we overcome sin, the less tendency we have to sin. Once you start ticking off boxes that don't tempt you anymore, there's a refining going on there. There is a growth. There is a maturation that is in process there. And um, we will never achieve perfection, but we are commanded to strive for perfection. And it's done by resisting temptation, growing in the grace and knowledge of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that it can only be done through learning more about him and his will. And I guarantee you, if there was a study from those people who sin the least, if they are Bible believers, how much time they spend in God's word. And that there'd be a high there'd be a strong correlation there. It can't help but soak in the more you immerse yourself in God's word. So, uh, next week, he will talk to us about another topic. I didn't look ahead to see which one that was. But his, his thoughts here on morality and his, his, uh, his thoughts on um, you know, how, how we decide what to do right and wrong. The Bible is your best source of information. It is that which not only will help you live a good moral life, it will help you achieve eternal salvation. And that's that. Thank you. See you next week.